Well, welcome back once again to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Aris. I'm joined as ever by Dr. Joe Boot and Nathan Oblack. Good to be together again, guys. It's been uh, it's been a good week so far. We've come out of a uh, pretty busy week last week, and for those of you who are who track with us, you know that we've uh, we spent a lot of time hyping our uh, Niagara Declaration Conference, and then the Church and Culture telling people about the event that's been sold out that they can't get to. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but they, we had uh, we had a good a good turnout. We had a, what was 150 of our our nearest and dearest friends. Yeah. Yeah. A very enthusiastic group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, a big thank you to that group because as they left the conference, uh, the amount of positive feedback about the conference itself, but also about the podcast, our resources was. To be honest, just overwhelming as people left the conference. So big thank you to all of that feedback. It was uh, it was a really encouraging day. Uh, we had uh, yeah fellows uh, Aaron Rock and Andre Shooten, Joe Boot spoke as well as Pastor Tim Stevens. And you would have heard Tim and Andre on last week's episode of the podcast. They were here for the Church and Culture Colloquium as well, mm-hmm. which ran uh, the rest of last week. Mm-hmm. Pastors and church leaders gathering together just to consider how we minister in the midst of of the, the situation that we find ourselves in. Right. And it was so great to have Pastor Tim here for the whole week, uh, just getting to know him personally as a man. Mm. We're, we're very appreciative of his efforts that have been obviously made very public, um, but his just patience, faithfulness, his love of the Lord was so clear throughout the week, I thought. Yeah, fantastic example. Mm-hmm. And, uh, great to have some of his family here uh, with him as well. So that was a great week last week, conference. And uh, despite our uh, limitations on how many we can host here, um, it was a great conference and, and you know, fantastic time with, with pastors and leaders. Really good. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you guys see the, uh, the shell from the, uh, the gun that Tim fired? No, I did oh, not. Right. <laughs> it, was, it was ridiculous. It was like, Half the size of Joe's beer bottle. It was, oh. a, I think it was a 50 caliber. Oh, good but Alberta one his, boy. Uh, one of his boys <laughs> was like showing pictures of it in the, uh, in the library one evening. <laughs> just like his whole hand. He could barely get his, get his hand around the thing. <laughs> oh. oh, and Ryan, before you oh. continue, oh, I have so- to interrupt you for a moment because there is a, an admission I think we owe to our audience. And, and that's that our founder and president, uh, Dr. Joe Boot, has just recently tested positive for oh, no. climate change. I think you mean I was diagnosed with climate change. Oh, no. Uh, because apparently that's <laughs> now a medical condition. Um, is, is there a cure? <laughs> um, can I, I, can I purchase of, some uh, carbon a, credits? A regular dose of scripture for you know X number of weeks is the only possible cure for, <laughs> that's right. for, for the climate cult. Yeah. But, you know, that, that's, we, that's, we, well, we told you, Joe, to stay home in quarantine, but uh, he showed up, so I'm sure we're, you know, well, listen, don't Ryan and I are, are contagious now. Now as we're well. on the hook yeah. for climate change. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Fear not. Uh, uh, our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, speaking from his porcelain white throne today, has promised to not only control disease but also the weather. So we are um, we're in we're, we're in good hands there. No, no need to worry. Okay. This, this well, all, that's, this that's all a comes out of a bizarre um, article that I tweeted about last week. I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This was this was a real and diagnosis. Not a, yeah. Not right? a satirical article. Yeah. yeah which yeah. was not a joke. Uh, I, I have not. Been not a deliberate joke. 
I've not been formally <laughs> diagnosed with climate change, I should add, but there was a, a doctor in BC who made a world first here, of course it would be Canada, who actually diagnosed somebody with climate change. Mm. Uh, and, you remember uh, when world firsts used to be meaningful? <laughs> <laughs> this actually made it into the international press. There was an article in a oh. major British newspaper about this doctor who just diagnosed somebody with climate change. But on a serious note, I mean, this is the this is the this is the problem. This is the issue, isn't it? Is that that whole agenda um, could and and I think will be. Uh, spun as a as a health crisis that's already happening mm. uh, and people will start to talk it talk about it as a health issue and i think india actually last week announced its first climate lockdown uh, mm. so this is um this is a potential problem going forward but it it certainly did um you got to see the funny side when you when you start having people diagnosed with uh, mm -hmm. with, <laughs> we, with climate we, we try to do that around here <laughs> that's how we get through it all yeah. yeah well there's a lot of climate change in here a lot of hot air mm. but um, anyway uh, yeah. get out and plant some trees or uh, <laughs> i'm just i'm just trying to think of a a cure <laughs> can't uh, can't let this go on <laughs> All right, moving on. <laughs> Transition time. Yeah, that's right. In, in the sense of moving on to the next subject. Yes. Yeah, yeah that right. kind of transition. Clarify. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've been uh, we've been saying this for several weeks now, and we've finally arrived. This is our Q and A episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. So over the uh, over the past several weeks, uh, several of you have sent in questions. We really appreciate hearing from you. Thanks for uh, for sending those along. We're going to try to get to a few of those uh, most uh, most pressing uh, questions that uh, that we've received today. Joe, I want to start off with a question that we seem to deal with every year or so, but it uh, it bears repeating. It bears clarification. Mm -hmm. You know, our own understanding is constantly developing on this, but the question is. Uh, what is theonomy? Hmm. And that's uh, Ryan. You watch your it. mouth in the knock cellar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So this is uh, this is a great great place to to, to start. I think with um, this, this session. I mean, simple mm -hmm. in, in its simplest form, we need to we need to say that uh, theonomy. Uh, should be contrasted with autonomy. So at its most basic mm -hmm. level, theonomy simply means God's law. Mm -hmm. Who could object to that? Uh, surprising. Well. A lot of people, actually. <laughs> but uh, but it, theonomy or autonomy, that was the way your Cornelius Van Til set up the antithesis. Um, and of course, this, in a, as a general statement, applies to uh, all of creation law as well as scriptural law. Uh, as we're given it in special revelation, uh, that there is a choice for human beings in terms of living, in terms of God's laws and norms, or uh, our own uh, being a law or to ourselves, which is what autonomy literally means, to self-law. Mm -hmm. And so fundamentally, theonomy is about God's law and a recognition of the place and the authority and the importance of God's law. 
Now, we might narrow that down a little bit uh, further and say that uh, theonomy, as it has been uh, discussed in recent decades, when uh, a, a sort of resurgence of Puritan thinking started to happen uh, in the 1970s with people like um, Francis Schaeffer, um, R.J. Rushduni, and others. And in fact, um, one of the most important books of the 1970s, and actually this was, uh, this was uh, the words of Christianity Today at the time, not me, um, which is now sort of Christianity Astray, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, Christianity or, Decay. Decay or yeah, the various sure. other... Uh, you got one, Ryan? Christianity of, Yesterday? Ah, uh, yeah. good. But back then in the 70s, uh, they actually called uh, R.J. Rushduni's book with uh, P&R Publishing, um, The Institutes of Biblical Law, Volume 1, as uh, one of the most important books, I think, of, was it 1974? I, uh, it mm. might have been 76. Don't quote me on that. But it was, it was in the early 70s. Um, and uh, that sort of, that, that book triggered a renewed interest in the details of God's law for evangelicals. And uh, since that time, um, a variety of um, cultural thinkers and theologians and uh, uh, scholars have uh, given more, a little more attention to the issue of theonomy. And so more narrowly, um, theonomy is a view of Christian ethics. It's a view within Christian ethics. And I think that's actually really important to note because what tends to happen now when you talk about theonomy, talk about God's law, you mention it and its relevance for today, mm. is this sort of hysterical mm. uh, reaction of people. And unfortunately, sometimes really surprising people, like scholars, people mm -hmm. who, uh, who ought to know better and who, if they'd done any re careful reading in the area, would have a clearer understanding of the subject. Mm. You get this hysterical reaction that theonomy is some kind of political philosophy, mm -hmm. uh, a sort of a fully rounded political philosophy that believes in the imposition of, of scriptural law and of the instatement of come, some sort of ecclesiocracy uh, of, a, yeah. of, a, of a state led by clergymen um, dominating political life and imposing the details of God's law on an unwilling society. Mm. And that is pretty much the opposite of right. um, a transformationalist cultural perspective that we would advance um, here at the Ezra Institute. So theonomy is not a political philosophy. Um, it is not, uh, for example, it's not, it doesn't work out the details of, um, of what we would call sphere sovereignty, although most people who would identify as theonomic in their thinking would hold to the principle of sphere sovereignty, which of course guarantees various areas of liberty as we've discussed already on the, on the show. Um, uh, but and actually the, the, the sort of the initial objection that comes up there about politics actually betrays the fact that most Christians have become statist in their thinking, um, that they actually believe that um, if uh, the, the, the goal of, of somebody who's theonomic is to seize the levers of political mm. power. And mm. that would mean the imposition of God's law right. and its details on people's lives. Right. They picture some kind of Christian Sharia 
precisely mm-hmm. in fact it's been called that mm-hmm. yeah it's had some people have even called it you know christian sharia and that you know that, mm-hmm. that joe boot and others are want sort of kind of christian taliban right um this is absurd mm-hmm. uh but it is you know repeated um often by um you know even i've heard canadian baptist historians uh talking in these terms as though they're making some kind of accurate description of the enemy and they're, they're terrified of um of uh a what goes along with this notion, of course, is that this would involve some kind of establishment of a particular Christian denomination as well, in which maybe the Anglicans or the Presbyterians would persecute the Baptists and so on. And so you get all of these complete red herrings um, and straw men set up surrounding theonomy, mm-hmm. which is why I think it's a really good place to start, that it, fundamentally at the foundation, it's God's law or self-law. Mm-hmm. If you believe ultimately that God's law... Uh, God's law word should govern people and nations, then in one way or another, you're a theonomist. And actually, uh, I should add as well, before we tack forward on that, uh, is that actually every social order is a theonomic order, Mm. and every social order is a theocracy. It's not a question of whether we will have a theocracy and whether there Mm -hmm. will be uh, a theonomy. The issue is simply which God... Yeah, uh, any society is going to follow. Is it vox populi, vox dei? The, vo- the voice of the people is the voice of God. Is it the party, the infallible party, as in communism? Uh, is it going to be the, the the state itself that speaks the word of God, the law? Um, I've often mentioned uh, Michael Ignatieff, who uh, d- defined this whole idea of uh, of um, the when he was talking about the state, that it was the object of ultimate allegiance and the source of law. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if, if we can actually view the people or the state or the party as uh, the voice of God, and therefore every social order, be it Islamic, secular, Hindu, Christian, is a theocracy, and every uh, social order or law order posit some kind of principle of sovereignty and therefore some kind of God behind its law order. So I would argue that theonomy and theocracy are inescapable concepts. Yep. Um, it simply depends on which God is behind the social order of any society uh, the, as the principle mm. of sovereignty that, that is the source of law. And from the Christian point of view, that has to be the God of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And Joe, just quickly, I wonder if this... Uh this aversion to theonomy is in any way related to, we've kind of got this contemporary understanding of power and how it's inherently bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you see that being related? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. In fact, um, Doyavird in, um, I think, Twilight of Western Thought um, picks this up, where he mm-hmm. has a, a brief discussion about power and uh, he points to the terrible error of people thinking that power um, in itself is demonic. Hmm. Um, in fact, you know, people who talk about wanting to live on the margins and um, be, uh, Christianity should be on the margins. Christianity mm. is always at its best when we're persecuted and we're under the boots of the, of the all-powerful state. And um, this was the position, supposedly, that, uh, that God wants us to be in or that the early church was in and so on. Well, I, I don't buy um, I don't buy any of that. Mm. Uh, but the, the the fundamental error there is to think that power in itself is demonic. Mm. 
God is the all-powerful one. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful, omnipotence. Uh, and so power um, is an inescapable reality of human life and existence. And the issue is only how power will be used, not whether power is real or whether power um, is in and of itself demonic. No, power, cultural power, historical cultural power as it's manifest in human history, is either put into the service of God or the service of idols. Mm. Um, and surely every Christian wants power, whether it's in the church or the family or the business enterprise or in the state, to be put into the service of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be put into the service of God. And in fact, Jesus Christ, as Doiver had pointed out, summons all power and authority to his service. And Doiver hmm. said, including the sword power of the state. When he said in Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Uh, therefore, you can go. So all authority and power belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Revelation 1.5 reminds us he is the ruler of kings. There's uh, and uh, we see that um, the book of Revelation also quotes Psalm 2, uh, which concerns the, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the king at the right hand of God, ruling the nations with a rod, with a rod of iron. And so Christ Jesus summons all power and authority, as does Paul in Romans 13, into the service of God as his diaconate. So the idea that somehow power is something Christians should shun that political power um, or social power, cultural power, is something that Christians should run away from in terror, is bizarre. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, 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 it's very, very strange. I mean, um, why would a Christian father run away from a godly use of power and authority in the family? Or elders run away from a godly use of power and authority in the church? Or the, or the employer uh, run away from a godly use of power and authority in his business? or a magistrate run away from a godly use of power and authority in the courts, or a politician who's a Christian run away from a godly use of power and authority in politics. Power is not demonic. Mm -hmm. It can either be put into the service of God or idols. And so, yes, you're right. Uh, when people hear theonomy, they think, ah, Taliban, <laughs> enforcement of, of, of godless uh, power and authority over an unwilling populace. That's the opposite of the, the Christian view of theonomy and Christian ethics. Mm. Um, and as I say, theonomy in of itself is not a political philosophy. Uh, for that, you need to mine the reformational tradition and uh, sphere sovereignty and the principles of sphere sovereignty to see where um, a theonomic view uh, informs the, 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 the moral and the dural aspects hmm. of, of our experience hmm. um, and uh, must, be our, must be our source of authority. Joe, let's, uh, I, I want to look a little more closely at, uh, at the nomi part, the nomos part of theonomy. Mm -hmm. You said something about theonomy, that theonomy applies to creation law mm -hmm. and you also talked about uh, God's law. So part of the question is, uh, when you say God's law, I think a, a lot of Christians uh, will hear that phrase and interpret it to mean, oh, you're talking about the Mosaic law. Mm -hmm. Is that is that accurate? Or is, uh, is there more to God's law than the Torah? Mm -hmm. And 
Uh, yeah, what, what would it mean for theonomy to apply in creation law? So when I when I said theonomy applies to all of God's law, it's simply I simply mean that entomologically the word simply means God's law, right? And that yeah. uh, and that in its broadest sense, we should say and can say that all of creation is ruled by the law word of God. Um, that all creation is an instantiation of His law word, um, and so therefore we can see God's law at work in all of creation. And what's important about that is to say that. Because creation is revelation in that sense, uh, it's a revelation of the will and purpose of God. God's inscripturated law, uh, his inscripturated law word, doesn't contradict creation law. Right? They are of a piece. They're a, they're a, they're a, they're a, they're a one-piece garment. Um, and so they are, they are um, uh, seamlessly, if I can say that, woven together, which is a contradiction but they are uh, but they are they are uh, seamlessly interconnected mm-hmm. intertwined perhaps that's a better way of expressing it with one another um, and so we do not we should not be looking for contradiction um, within you know some would so for example with that I'm saying that you know those who say well no our guide is natural law well what do you mean do you mean that? Do you mean God's law for creation? And are you saying that God's law in creation contradicts His law in Scripture, His inscripturated law? Um, we'll come and deal with in another episode, a full episode. We'll deal with the whole notions of natural theology and natural law as they've been traditionally understood. Oh, that's good because we have questions on those too. Yeah, which are usually uh, uh, appealed to as a way of avoiding direct reference to the inscripturated law of God and yet have some kind of transcendent authority mm. you know or if we can find in reason itself um, uh, in a rational cosmos somehow a natural law there that uh, you know, men of right reason can all access then maybe we can have some sort of transcendent authority without reference to scripture um, but um, no the, the creation word is spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, the law that he expounds in Matthew 5 um, which is his going up as the greater Moses onto the mountain to expound the law, uh, is also equally uh, the law word of the creator. So these are of a piece. They're involved in one another, and they shouldn't be, um, they shouldn't be artificially separated. So that's what I mean fundamentally when we can say that theonomy, in its broadest sense, is about the law word of God. And, of course, that begins in creation. Without creation, the inscripturated word it can't be interpreted, uh, and vice versa. We cannot properly interpret the creation law word without the inscripturated word. So, uh, and the creator and the redeemer who um, expounds the law of God for us perfectly uh, is the one who holds those together in, in unity. And that, uh, that actually leads really well into, into our next question, uh, which is kind of a... Uh, Let's maybe a uh, an application or an, an instantiation of a listener who's trying to uh, to work through questions of theonomy, and uh, I guess for that I get we should just say I'm sorry. But, uh, uh, this uh, this listener brings up uh, a common retort that uh, that they've experienced uh, when he brings up the importance of the law. That is. Somebody would challenge him, oh, you follow the law, so do you perform sacrifices? Mm. 
Uh, and his uh, is his question. I forget if it's him, but I'm just using the royal he there. If the law is applicable to us today, are there certain portions of it that are obsolete? Knowing that we don't have the temple today, where does that put the sacrificial system of the old temple? Jesus was our sacrifice, and he said he came to fulfill the law. But does that nullify the Mosaic covenant? So those are all good questions, and obviously we want to, uh, to to drive people, if possible, to pick up the mission of God, mm-hmm. um, absolutely, and uh, and and to read it, um, and to discover there some of the resources uh, from church history in in understanding this and in and interpreting God's law properly. It has been said actually that you know the question of law gospel um, is been the centerpiece of evangelical theology. Um, the, the, the right way of uh, understanding the, the covenant law of God as it is progressively uh, unfolds uh, in, the, uh, in the scriptures. Um, and so the, there obviously are, there is a progress of redemption and there's a progress of revelation. Um, and therefore there are changes um, in the administration, that's what the Bible is clear about, is that uh, there is a change in the administration um, of the law. So in the uh, Older Covenant, we have the Old Testament administration of the law under the Aaronic priesthood, and that involved, remember when the um, covenant law was given, the, 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 the ten words uh, are given at uh, Mount Sinai, there is also given a template if you will for the temple for the for the for the building right. uh, of of the temple itself mm-hmm. where we see the uh, the details of the sacrificial system uh come to the fore which obviously point us forward as a shadow um to the perfect sacrifice of the lord jesus christ and with the lord jesus there is a change in the priesthood and a change in the administration um of the law uh, because, and that's of course what the book of Hebrews is about. The book of Hebrews is about the change in the priesthood from the Aaronic priesthood to the uh, the order of Melchizedek, of which Christ is um, the the manifestation. And actually, we as Christians are priests now in Christ after the order of Melchizedek, because we see an internationalizing of the relevance um, of the law. Maybe at this point, it would be good to. Um, to just um, read a couple of things from um, uh, the mission of God that I think help bring a bit of clarity uh, to those to those questions. Obviously, in, in a 45-minute episode, we can't deal with every question about the law and biblical penology and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. But we can say uh, a few things. Um, and, <coughs> excuse me, and, and, and this will help us... Um, uh, summarize it and get a, uh, a broad picture and then we, perhaps we can uh, zone in on that question a little bit and talk about the, the reformers threefold division of the law and how we can use that as a resource. So I'm quoting now from the mission of God and beginning on page 310. Uh, and I, I write there and I quote, uh, that is to say the Puritan mind holds that all governments past, present and future are inescapably accountable to the standards of God's law in matters of uh, crime and punishment rightly interpreted, not their own and will be judged by it. 
The law's binding validity, even in crim criminal matters, does not mean, however, that it can be imposed on an unwilling society. Mm. On the contrary, God's law can only be effectively applied when a godly people demand it in terms of oath and covenant. And this is how the Puritans viewed their society as a missionary people in covenant with the Lord. As Rashtuni has critically pointed out concerning the death penalty, the penalty applies to a covenant people directly. Moreover, Rashtuni writes, in the long run, legal reform without religious reform is not a tenable hope. There must be religious reformation before there is judicial or civil reform, or the alternative is coercion. Coercion eventually produces greater evils. Theonomists, therefore, are emphatically against coercion. Practically, this means that our first task as Christians is evangelism and teaching all that God has commanded, whilst recognizing that the Old Testament laws continue in force unless rescinded or modified mm. by further revelation in light of Christ's eschatological mission as the fulfiller, interpreter, and enforcer of God's law. Thus, theonomic Puritanism is the belief that all of Scripture in its totality is God's covenant law word, and as such, properly interpreted, remains in force in every detail till heaven and earth pass away. As Vern Poitras notes, at the heart of theonomy is the conviction that God's word is the only standard for evaluating all human action, whether in social, personal, or the judicial sphere. Such a view, theonomists hold, deserves the support of all Christians. And um, that's, a, I think, a, a reasonable summary statement mm -hmm. of, the, of the theonomic position, that it's not mm -hmm. saying, what we're not saying is, <clears throat> Uh, it's only about the Mosaic law, because then we wouldn't have the prophetic literature where um, the prophets are applying the law. Uh, we wouldn't have the wisdom literature where the uh, where David is singing about the law in Psalm 119 and Psalm 19 and 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 praying the law, and uh, we see the sort of the beauty and desirability, spirituality mm -hmm. of the law. Um, and we would be missing also the teaching of a father to his son, the law of God in the book of Proverbs. So you've got it being prophesied, you've got it being prayed and sung, and you've got it being taught. Um, so Torah literally means instruction. And uh, we can say that, that God's instruction, in that sense, God's law is all of Scripture. We're not limited to mosaic portions because, you know, in the prophets... Israel is being called back to obedience to God's law and in the wisdom literature we're being taught to to value and appreciate and recognize the beauty the value the applicability of the law and then of course the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5 mm. goes up onto the mountain as the greater Moses and he interprets the law and notice there that he doesn't say you have heard that Moses said but I say to you he says that you have heard that it was said but I say to you, so what Jesus is doing there is criticizing not Moses. He's mm -hmm. not criticizing uh, the, the work of Moses, which is, of course, God's law, um, not Moses' law anyway. Uh, he is criticizing the interpreters of the law, the, the legal scribes, the Pharisees, who misinterpreted the law or gave inadequate applications of the law. That's what he's criticizing. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And Jesus himself exegetes the fullness of the law. And of course, critically in that passage, he tells us that he's not come to abolish the law. Mm. And this is the bane of the dispensationalist, of course. He has not come to abolish the law, 
but to fulfill it, play room, to put into force, to bring to its completion. And he says that heaven and earth isn't going to pass away. Not, in fact, not one jot, uh, not one punctuation mark of the law is going to pass till everything is accomplished. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away. So Mm. Jesus emphatically uh, upholds the fullness of God's law. Now, what some people have tried to do with that, in fact, this is what some evangelicals have tried to do, is then to say, well, uh, Jesus' exposition of the law belonged to another dispensation. It doesn't really apply to Christians. I mean, Mm -hmm. what a remarkable thing to say. The teaching of the Lord Jesus doesn't apply to Christians. Well, Jesus contradicts that himself when he tells us that um, those who teach these, to do these things and teach others to do likewise will be called great in what? The kingdom of heaven. That's right. Uh, and those who um, break these, these laws, God's law, and teach others to do likewise will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So it very much concerns the kingdom manifesto. That God's law is the kingdom manifesto. Now notice that Jesus at the, 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 at the final supper, when he's cutting covenant with the disciples, where we have the uh, the beginnings of the uh, of the ratification of the covenant in the blood of Christ, not the blood now of bulls and goats, but the blood of Christ. Uh, at the Last Supper, Jesus um, tells us that the covenant now is guaranteed by His blood, by His blood. But at that point, He doesn't give a new law. Law is. The, the covenant of God is law mm-hmm. and blood, always, mm-hmm. law and blood. But Jesus doesn't give a new law there. And he says, I, a new commandment I'm giving to, to, one, to you, love one another as I, as I have loved you. And Paul tells us in Romans 13 that love is the fulfillment of the law. Okay. So um, the, Jesus didn't give a new law because the law had already been given. Yeah. Uh, what was changing was the administration of the law that now the the guarantee of our salvation, of our cleansing from sin, was not the mosaic system of the temple, but was the blood of Christ himself, the Lamb of God. And of course, we have multiple images for who Christ is. He is the temple. He's the cornerstone. He's the Lamb of God. So what we're seeing is a is a shift in the administration of God's law. Now the covenant of God, which is given to us in uh, in Jeremiah thirty one and Hebrews chapter eight, is that the law of God is not going to be abolished or dispensed with, mm. but it's going to be written on our hearts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the this is part of the gospel, and this is where so many evangelicals mm. go wrong. If you want to know what the new covenant is, the Bible tells us. It's right there. Read it. Jeremiah 31, Hebrews chapter 8. It is that the law of God, God's law word, is going to be inscribed upon our hearts. This is going to become our desire and our delight. No, not external, not kept in tablet, not kept in the Ark of the Covenant, inscribed on tablets of stone, but now inscribed in our own hearts. Because we are now living stones built into that temple. In that sense, we now carry the law of God around in us. Mm-hmm. And the blood uh, of that covenant is no longer the blood that was taken into the temple, but it's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ 
who actually does take it into the scripture makes clear, Hebrews makes clear, the heavenly temple. Mm-hmm. Remember, the earthly temple was only a copy of the one in heaven. And Christ sprinkles his blood there upon the mercy seat. So um, here we can say that even the ceremonial aspects of the law of God are not abolished. They are transposed, as Calvin would say. They are actually, they are applied now uh, in the heavenly temple through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is not the law, uh, the Decalogue that has changed. It is the administration of the law in the new priest king, the Lord Jesus Christ, which involves the internationalizing of the covenant. It's no longer Israel and Aaron. Why is Melchizedek important here? Because Abraham, uh, in whom Aaron is in the loins of Abraham, remember, this is what the Bible reminds us, so the priesthood is in the loins of Abraham. Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek, the priest king who is a picture of Christ, if not a Christophany. I think, actually, the priest king of Salem and a a genuine Mm. historical figure. And, of course, that predates the very existence of Israel. That's the importance Mm. of it. It predates the existence of of Israel as a covenant people because the purpose of Israel was always missiological, that it would would bear the covenants of promise, protect the seed of the woman um, till Christ is born, and then, as Jesus says to Philip at the end, when the Greeks ask to see Jesus uh, before he goes to the cross, you'll recall, we want the Greeks come, and they say, they want to, we want to see Jesus. And Jesus says, Now's the, 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 now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. When I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men to myself. Hmm. And he tells the disciples, you'll recall, towards the end, many will come from the east and the west, and they'll sit down in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Never was it in Jesus's mind or the apostles' mind that somehow the cross of Christ abolishes the law of God. Mm. Rather, we are redeemed from all lawlessness, the Bible says, so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. And we are being conformed to the image of his son. That's what Paul tells us, that the Christian is being conformed to the image of his son, while Christ was obedient to the law of God. He was the truly obedient son. He was the true Israelite. Would it not be a bizarre thing to think, brothers, that the, 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 the very thing, the Bible defines sin as lawlessness, mm-hmm. the very thing that Christ went to the cross for, our violation of God's law, uh, that now, having been redeemed from all lawlessness, our calling in life is to set aside the very law mm-hmm. that took Christ to the cross. No, uh, that's an insult, and that's why to, to the gospel, and that's why the apostle Paul says, um, "Should we sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. Do, do do we abolish the law? By no means." So Paul denies emphatically that the law is abolished, and uh, in fact, Paul the apostle appeals repeatedly to the law, actually even in its details. So if you look at First Timothy one, he talks mm-hmm. about the civil use of the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, But Paul also talks very plainly about applications of case law when he takes the law about not muzzling an ox while it treads out the grain. And he applies that to not um, uh, to denying to not denying those who labor in the word of God their pay, that they're worthy of double honor. So those who teach should be paid well in Ephesians. Paul actually takes the law, the first commandment with a promise when he's teaching about the family. 
and he and he reminds children to obey their parents in the Lord, but he modifies the promise. How? He internationalizes it. Because, remember, as I've just said, the priesthood, the administration has changed. Therefore, the significance of Aaron and the priesthood has changed. And therefore, Paul says that we honor our father and father and mother that it may go well with you and you live long, not in the land, but in the earth. Mm. Because now, <laughs> as God's people, we are inheriting the whole earth, not a strip of land in Palestine. So yeah. this is what's going on. This is what's going on. The law is not being abrogated. God is not, Christ is not tossing aside the very law that he gave to Moses, the law that he wrote, that the finger of God wrote in tablets of stone. No, Paul says, as Paul says, we uphold the law. We don't abolish the law. We uphold the law. But the law is good if one uses it lawfully. We don't wash, this is the mistake people make. We don't wash ourselves in the law. We are washed in the blood of right. Christ. Mm -hmm. The law... Mm -hmm. The letter condemns, but the Spirit gives life. And by the new birth, by the work of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant, uh, Jeremiah 21, 31, Hebrews 8, we are washed, we are cleansed from, from our sin. We're, we're redeemed from all lawlessness that we might now re, uh, be obedient, live in obedience to the law of liberty, live in obedience to the law that restores the soul, as the psalmist puts it. Uh, and this is the joy of understanding the fullness of the kingdom of God and the kingdom manifesto, is that, uh, that we've been redeemed from all lawlessness. We are now being restored to the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, so that with joy in our hearts, as our desire and delight, we will now obey the law of God. And so um, Christians have wrestled with this question for centuries, and um, the reformers actually came to an attempt to um, help people uh, understand their reading of the law, of the Torah. And they talked about a moral, civil, and ceremonial aspects of the law. And it's true that you don't turn to the Bible and read a list of ceremonial mm -hmm. laws, a list of civil laws, and a list of moral laws. Mm -hmm. um, but, it, but that principle does help us to understand what we're looking at. Right. And what we're looking for, because often these laws are intertwined with one another. And I think probably Jonathan Burnside in God, Justice and Society brilliantly shows uh, the involvement of these laws in one another. Mm -hmm. So we shouldn't be trying to read off biblical law like it's a modern constitution. Like where, right. where's the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Deuteronomy? Mm -hmm. like, it has mm -hmm. actually the foundations, <laughs> interestingly enough, of our rights and freedoms there. But you don't read them off in terms of modern legal codes. Right. Um, although the first codification of um, civil law uh, was found in the work of Alfred the Great in England centuries ago, and it begins with the Ten Commandments. But the moral ceremony in civil, we can say that the, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, are the standing law. Uh, that's the, the, as God has revealed it, that's the standing law. That's the, that's the constitution of the kingdom. And then the case laws or the detailed commandments are applications into Israelite society of the standing law. So, for example, you wouldn't know the nature and the details about what adultery is if you didn't have the case law. Uh, you wouldn't know what um, other forbidden sexual sins were without the case law. For mm -hmm. example, um, you know, I would ask the Christian who wants to reject the law of Moses, 
um, how do you know that bestiality is a sin? Mm. Yeah. You won't find any reference to it in the Newer Testament. Right. Mm. No, uh, because it's there in the case law. The case law helps us with that. The case law helps us distinguish between murder and manslaughter. So we're told you shall not murder in the Decalogue. But how do we know it, what murder is over against manslaughter? Well, the case laws show us. So the, the case laws or the detailed commandments are applications of that law into that society. And then you have laws that are associated specifically with the priesthood and the unique calling of Israel as a light to the nations and its laws of separation. Right. So there were certain so, yeah. laws of separation. Ceremonial. Yeah. Ceremonial right. elements of the law. Mm. And it, that's the key issue here. So we see the ceremonial law, as I said, transposed mm -hmm. in the newer covenant to the heavenly kingdom. And then we see modifications to the, uh, the, uh, the change in administration of the law, of the priesthood, means there are certain changes in the ceremonial priestly ordinances contained in ordinances. That's what the book of Hebrews says. That the temple system and the ceremonies and its rites contained in ordinances, those are vanishing away. But, but the writer of Hebrews is not saying that God's law vanishes away. Otherwise, he'd be contradicting Jesus, saying that it's not going to vanish mm -hmm. until heaven and earth passes away. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, and that's why we must interpret scripture with scripture. And so it's still a useful subdivision of the law to, to, to recognize moral, civil, and ceremonial elements. Mm. But the, the civil laws are moral laws, but they are a specific type of moral law. And in the dural aspect of our lives, as a civil government, we need to take God's law seriously. That's the theonomic position. And in the moral aspect of our lives, in the commandment to love, the central aspect of the moral, asp of the, of the moral function of our lives to love, well, that's what the Bible tells us, love God and love our neighbors ourselves. But then the Bible tells us what loving our neighbor really is. It's yep. obedience to God's law. Right. And that's what Paul is crystal clear about in Romans 13. So we just cannot separate these things and dispense mm. with the law of God for any reason. And to do so in the face of what Jesus said about the law and what the apostles have said about God's law is a travesty. Uh, and I would go as far as to say it's a Marcionite kind of heresy. Mm. Uh, it's to just try and dispense with um, the older covenant revelation as though in any way, shape, or form you could possibly comprehend the newer testament without the old, which was, of course, the older covenant was the Bible of the early church, mm. uh, of the apostles, until we had the, the, uh, the, the full canon of Scripture uh, completed. So I think that at least burrows down a little bit into the, the concern of that question. Right. And just quickly, Joe, I think, I think it's really helpful because as you go through a lot of this, really in its most simplistic terms, what we ought to be doing as we look at, investigate, interpret Old Testament law is what did Christ's sacrifice accomplish? You know, what, what in the law was fulfilled at Calvary? So I think when we mm. are able to look sure. at the laws uh, with those divisions in mind, that can be a helpful yeah. Tool. Yeah. yeah, and what you're saying there effectively is we have to read, we now read the totality of Torah. Christ was the living Torah. Right. He was the, he was the true Israelite, the truly obedient son. And he was, in, 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 in that sense, the, the, the living Torah, God's living instruction. And we now read the totality of God's law word through Christ, uh, not the other way around. Mm. Right, so so we we look at 
the totality of God's law word through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and his interpretation of the law. And that enables us to properly begin to pass out um, the uh, elements of the Mosaic law, Mosaic uh, uh, detailed commandments um, that are transposed uh, in the work of Christ into the heavenly temple. Uh, and, you know, the, in, in a certain sense, you see, we can say that the laws of separation are still in force, but they're in force in a slightly different form. Right. So Paul says, you know, come out from among them and be separate. Um, you know, don't touch any unclean thing. Uh, so the, 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 the commandment to um, separate ourselves unto holiness now as God's people is the application of the laws of separation today. Um, and uh, I think generally speaking, most evangelicals, when you explain that to them and you say, look, how does, you know, when Christ died at the cross, what took place at the temple? Well, the temple curtain was rent from top mm-hmm. to bottom, mm-hmm. and it signified our access into the presence of God mm-hmm. through our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. So mm-hmm. that was the ending of the era of the the Israelite temple, because the temple is now being built together of living stones from Jew and Gentile, from every nation, the chief cornerstone uh, of which is Christ. So... I think where you run into the into the territory where people start to get incredibly wobbly is when you start talking about First Timothy chapter one and the civil uh, applications of the law which Paul the apostle himself makes uh, and that Jesus makes. I should add in Mark chapter seven, I think it is in Matthew fifteen, where Jesus even talks about some of the civil penalties with respect to egregious abuse and assault of our parents. That's right. <clears throat> and so uh, let's let's bear in mind that Jesus himself dealt with some of the penalties in the law. And what I talk about and explain in Mission of God um, is that law um, is not law if it's simply advice. Um, Law Mm. without sanction is not law. It's just a bit of counsel. Mm, And, you know, even when you look at God's uh, laws, creational laws and norms, if you violate mm. God's, you try yeah. and violate God's law of gravity, <laughs> you know, there's a sanction involved in that. If you violate any normal law that God has established, there is consequences. And in the jural aspect and the moral and jural aspects of our lives, um, there is law involves both precept and penalty. Um, otherwise, it's just advice. And uh, if we're going to tell the difference between crime and punishment, (laughs) we have to take also God's penalties seriously, as Jesus does, as Paul does. Um, In fact, in Romans 1, Paul makes very clear um, uh, the uh, biblical penalties for certain actions. So it's those things that tend to offend people. Um, Law, you see, is a value processing system. Laws because they are precept and sanction together teach values. Mm-hmm. So the illustration I often give is that if you were, you know, caught jaywalking by the police, you know, across the road and uh, you were, you were sentenced by the court to 10 years uh, of hard labor. Um, what would you conclude about that society? Well, they really value the flow of traffic. Um, what's most important to that society is people get to where they're going mm-hmm. and to interfere with that is, uh, severely punished. But what if in that same society you were fined, uh, the penalty for rape was a was a $50 fine? 
Mm-hmm. What would the, what would that say about the value of women in that culture? That's why in Canada, for example, right up to 1950, you could be executed for rape as a Canadian. Mm-hmm. That that taught values. It taught Canadians. It became a plausibility structure for society to say something about the value of the family and the value of women. So whenever you see a revolution in the law going on, as we're seeing in our society now, we've been repealing biblical law for about 70 years, steadily. When you see a legal revolution, what you're seeing is a change of so- changes of source of sovereignty and thereby a change of gods yeah. in that social right. order. Mm-hmm. That's why law, this dual aspect, in both, in both precept and penalty is so important because the penalty attached to any precept tells you something about the value of that precept. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I think that's where people tend to panic. They haven't thought these issues through properly. And, and you know, we could get into, if we had time, which we don't have time for today, but if we did, we could talk about um, the fact that the Bible only mandates the death penalty for first-degree murder um, as an absolute non-negotiable. Um, uh, and that for the various other crimes in the Bible, there are a variety of options open to the civil magistrate. But I deal with all of that in Mission of God. Dr. Jonathan Burnside deals it with it, with it as well in God, Justice, and, um, and Society. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is that it's not just the, um, the precepts of God's law that we need to take seriously we actually have to take uh, also the, the penalties of yeah. God's law seriously because it says something about the value of the precept. Mm-hmm. And just to uh, sort of thread this all the way back to where you started from in, uh, in the, the inescapable uh, distinction between theonomy versus autonomy, uh, this, mm. this was really profound to me when I first started thinking about, about all of these things that a law itself is another inescapable concept. Right. You're you're going to punish and protect something. Absolutely, and our culture has no problem with the death penalty. Right. We just inflict it on the innocent. That's right. So we abort infants um, right up to term. Uh, we are now executing the elderly and the infirm. We don't mm-hmm. have a problem killing people. Yeah. Uh, as a culture, um, our issue today is that we want to kill the innocent, uh, but not execute the guilty. Uh, people mm-hmm. who are guilty of capital offenses. That's right. Um, and, uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why our culture is under judgment. We believe mm-hmm. it's a very dangerous thing when we start to believe we're more holy than God. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that disturbs me most when I talk to you know, opponents, so-called opponents of theonomy amongst Christians, is that they seem to believe that they are actually more righteous, more holy, and more just than God himself. I mean, when God formed the constitution of a people and gave his law, are we really going to stand here as human beings and say to God, and say to the Lord Jesus Christ that your law is unjust mm-hmm. and cruel mm-hmm. and is not for the, right. for the common good? And we're going to come up with a better one. And we're coming up mm-hmm. with a better one. Mm-hmm. That would have been a total offense to the reformers <laughs> and to the Puritans. Right. The Puritans spoke about the general equity of the law, which is a really important principle, which basically meant that we recognize that the, the applications of the Decalogue are given to an agrarian people living in a particular period, and that uh, some of those case laws, um, the, uh, the, 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 the principle at stake, even if the immediate practice has ceased or there is a, it refers to a cultural situation that no longer obtains, there is a principle at stake there, the general equity of which still applies. 
And that's what we mean by the continuity of God's law. And so the basic principle of a theonomic ethic is that we assume continuity unless discontinuity is specifically taught. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas a lot of modern Christians assume discontinuity with God's law, so it's no longer relevant in any way, shape, or form for the most part, unless a specific command is restated uh, in the Newer Testament. And even then, because of the poverty of many modern Christians' knowledge of the Bible, they don't understand what is restated clearly in the Newer Testament. Mm. But actually, the, the principle of biblical interpretation should be continuity unless discontinuity is itself taught in the Word of God. All right. Well, Joe, do you have... Uh... Do you have a passage there to uh, to sort of summarize and wrap us up here? Yeah, let me... ne Never let it be said that we don't strive for thoroughness in our answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you said, we had, I don't know, it was a multiplicity of questions on theonomy. And so mm -hmm. we thought, well, you know, let's tackle these. And um, a couple of the others that we've got here, we are going to deal with in forthcoming episodes. As That's we right. Get back to mm -hmm. reformational philosophy, and yeah. we'll, we will pick those up in detail. Mm -hmm. But let me just conclude with this, because especially for some of our, our Baptistic friends, because um, it's sometimes thought that this is some sort of, you know, narrow reformed perspective uh, from um, the, perhaps the Presbyterian or Calvinistic reform side of the, uh, the Reformation. Um, uh, but this is a, this is a, I think a good illustration as we look at the very recent history of evangelical thought in the West, and I'm going to take us to, very quickly to finish, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Victorian churchman, sometimes called the last of the Puritans, who actually wrote, unknown to many people, a political manifesto, um, uh, which, you know, I think modern evangelicals should read. Um, and in it, he makes absolutely clear that we are under the absolute sovereignty of God and his law. And uh, this is what he says about the Christian and politics, and I quote, I long for the day when the precepts of the Christian religion shall be the rule among all classes of men and all transactions. I often hear it said, do not bring religion into politics. This is precisely where it ought to be brought and set there in the face of all men as on a candlestick. I would have the cabinet and members of parliament do the work of the nation as before the Lord, end quote. And uh, it was the precepts, precepts of actually of God's law that was the primary concern of, uh, of Spurgeon in that statement. When he published this uh, philosophy, by the way, this, this, uh, this Christian manifesto, it was in response to um, the state trying to take over education hmm. in England uh, in the 1870s, uh, the education bill. Um, and in his manifesto, he phrased it as a series of questions. I'm quoting now again from Mission of God. In the first question, he asks, are not all mankind under law to God? And where and when did the king of all the earth announce that nations were, were to be free from his control and free from all recognition of his existence and authority? End quote. And then in his third question, he asks regarding the nation state and private companies. Are not both government and the company still bound to the laws of God? As, for instance, that which allots one day in seven for rest. If it be true that both are free from the, from the allegiance to the law of God, where is this affirmed or applied in Scripture? Question mark. And then in questions five and six, 
uh, he recognizes clearly that the rejection of Christian civil law is the de facto establishment of atheism, of religious atheism, that would inevitably persecute the Christian faith. And so in his 11th question, he asks, quote, is it not true that parliaments and kings and nations may say, let us break his bands asunder and cast his cords from us? Such language ill becomes Christian men. And his biographer, uh, Lewis Drummond, summarizes the source of Spurgeon's convictions when he says, quote, that philosophy grew out of his basic theology, namely that God is sovereign over all of life, and that includes politics, business, the home, and every other aspect of one's being, end quote. And so this, this was the conviction of earlier evangelicals. And it's actually uh, the, the modern evangelical posture of antinomianism is the novelty, not theonomy. Theonomy is looked at today by some as some sort of novel um, posture that arose in the 1970s with a few Presbyterian scholars. Mm-hmm. No, no, it didn't. It was the dominant posture of the evangelicals like Wilberforce, uh, the early missionaries, uh, the Careys of this world, Jonathan Edwards, the great revivalist. Um, and, uh, did I mention Wilberforce already? Right through on into the 19th century and great Baptist preachers like Charles Haddon Spurgeon. The law of God was to be set before parliaments and nations to be obeyed. <laughs> and it's the, the, it's the modern view that is the departure from uh, evangelical history. Right. Do you think that it was in the 1970s that it needed a name because up until then it had been the dominant position and just kind of presumed? I think that's a good, that's a very good point. I think you you could say that whilst there have always been, I mean, the way John Frame, the, the Presbyterian theologian John Frame has put it, is he says that, look, there have been in evangelical thought, he says, theonomy is a tendency. Right? Mm-hmm. He says it's mm. uh, it's not like, oh, here's the theonomy camp amongst the reformers. Here's the non-theonomy camp. No, there is a spectrum. And, uh, you know, you can look at Knox and Samuel Rutherford, and that's one end of the spectrum. And then you can look at some others uh, in the Baptist community and see uh, another end of the spectrum. Um, but the evangelical um, was theonomic. Um and believed that the, the law of God had to be set before all people. That's why it hung on the crown courts, on the walls of the crown courts in our lands. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's why it's inscribed in the walls of the Supreme Court in America today. Um, it was why it was, it was central to evangelical liturgies uh, and reformed liturgies uh, for centuries, that God's law was central for the Christian, and it applied to all men and nations, and I think you're right. It became such a, 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 a sort of novelty in the 20th century to talk about God's law that we actually needed a name for a, a re-emphasis on the law of God as given to us in in, in Scripture. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, Joe, thanks a lot. These were uh, I've re- I've really enjoyed this conversation and this episode. It's good to be together. I hope that uh, for those of you who have been asking uh, to us or amongst yourselves similar questions, I hope that this was a satisfactory answer. As, uh, as you said, we've got more questions that we'll deal with in forthcoming episodes. Do uh, pick up Joe's book, The Mission of God. You can get that at Ezra Press. I'll put a link in the notes. Thanks again for being with us. We look forward to seeing you next week. We'll remind you from the podcast for Cultural Reformation that from him 
and through him and to him are all things. To God alone be the glory.